Let's try, shall we? Father God, as we come to uh, study your word in this marvellous book of uh, Nehemiah that you inspired to be written for our benefit in, in your Bible, uh, we pray that your Holy Spirit would guide us and lead us uh, as, uh, as I speak, that he may speak to our hearts and we may be changed by your word. In the name of Jesus, amen. Well, you probably uh, know that I'm not the uh, greatest football fan in the world, but I have noticed that there is some kind of tournament going on at the moment, and I'm not just referring to the uh, Christian Football League where Holy Trinity wiped the floor of everybody else. But I wonder whether uh, any of you saw uh, uh, Desmond Tutu on the telly on, on Friday evening on the ITN News. Um, I think it's Friday evening. He was on his way home from, I think it's the opening ceremony, um, at the stadium and he was on his back, way back home and he was accosted by this news reporter in the street and there was this scene of sort of chaos in the street in Soweto outside his home. Uh, for some reason he seemed to be wearing Norwich City colours. I couldn't quite work that one out. As I said, I'm not the biggest football fan in the world but I'm sure Desmond uh, is very much in touch with what is happening to Norwich City. Uh, he was certainly wearing a lot of yellow and green. Um, but he was on his way home, and this reporter was stopping him in the street and saying, but wouldn't it have been better if they'd spent all that money they're spending on this tournament uh, on the poor, on developing the country, on developing, on, on, on developing education or health or whatever in South Africa? And Desmond Tutu just said, man cannot live by bread alone. This tournament gives the people so much more excitement, so much more than any money could ever give them, or, or words to that effect. So here's this man, Desmond Tutu, who, who God has used in so many ways to transform his country. But like Nehemiah, who we're reading about tonight, he knows that rebuilding a nation is not so much more than just rebuilding the walls of a city. It's not just about bricks and mortar. It's about the spirit and the morale of the people. And so, as we come into the book of Nehemiah, the first half of the book, chapters 1 to 6, are all about the rebuilding of the walls. But the second half, 7 to 13, is all about rebuilding the people. But what really struck me as I was watching Desmond Tutu and this a reporter on the television was how um, the reporter was forced to say at the end of his, uh, end of his little slot, and said, now Desmond Tutu, he's going... He's now on his way home, and he said, as he put it, to give thanks to God, to give thanks to God for the blessing of the World Cup in Af South Africa. Obviously, this reporter, a secular man, didn't quite know how to, uh, to sort of say, Desmond Tutu is now going to go home and pray. But that's what he was going to do. He was going to go home and pray. So he said, he's, as he put it, he's going home to give thanks to God. And the anchor man in the studio responds, yes, that was uh, Desmond Tutu there. What a great man. And that may well be true. I'm sure that Desmond Tutu is a great man. However, when Desmond was speaking, he never said a word about what the human leaders had done to transform South Africa. But he was going home to thank God. He was going home to give thanks to God for all that he had done for that country. Because Desmond Tutu recognises that it's God who chooses to, go, to do great things through us. But he only does that when we commit ourselves in prayer. And this book of Nehemiah, which we begin this evening, 
teaches us about how God took one man, located hundreds of miles away from a problem in a completely different country, and he uses him to change the course of history. But it all begins with prayer. So, um, before we dive in to the book, let's have a little bit of history. Can we have the uh, slide, John? You probably won't be able to read that, but I'll talk to you through it. <laughs> uh, this is probably over the top, but I got a little bit carried away. Um, you know the history of Israel. Uh, uh, the, the, uh, the, the greatest, one of the greatest moments, as it were, when, was when God led the people out of Egypt, out of slavery in Egypt during the Exodus, and, uh, and, and eventually they were led into the promised land and they were given kings. And under, under King David, they reached the pinnacle of their achievement, as it were, as they were learning to live in the promised land under God's promises uh, and under God's law. But then it started to go downhill a little bit from there. And they were sort of ebbing and flowing, sometimes obeying God, sometimes disobeying God. Different kings would, lay, uh, would try and bring them back to God. Others would take them away again. And eventually... Um, uh, because of the covenant promises, the blessings and curses that Deuteronomy talks about, eventually, because of their disobedience, they were taken into exile to Babylon around 597 BC, that's the top line, under the king Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon at that time. So empires came and went, and the, uh, and the, and the, the Babylonians took a large proportion of the population into exile in Babylonia. In 587, they destroyed the temple in Jerusalem, and you can read about that in Jeremiah 52. Whilst they're away in exile, God raised up prophets to speak to the exiles, to encourage them. Jeremiah uh, chapter 29 and verse 10, such a famous verse, says, This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. So Jeremiah was prophesying to these people in exile who were living in desperate conditions away from their homeland, away from the temple which had been destroyed, where it was the only place where they could meet with God, where they could make sacrifices for their sins, where they could be atoned for, where they could go back into relationship with God. Desperate times. As we move into the book of Ezra, first six chapters, we, we see how God um, removes Nebuchadnezzar he fulfills the promise of Jeremiah. He, he fulfills this promise uh, of plans which are going to prosper the people. And he puts in play, and, and, and the Persian Empire overruns the Babylonians. And Cyrus, the king of Persia, uh, uh, takes over control of the, this, these lands. And Cyrus was known as the generous empire, the generous king, because he allowed 50,000 of them to return back to Jerusalem and to start to rebuild the temple um, at his own expense. They started off, they made a reasonable start, they built the altar, they made the foundations, and you can read about that in Ezra chapter 1 to 6. But then they got discouraged, there was opposition, and they gave up, they left it at the foundation stage. So God raised up Haggai and Zechariah, and you can, you can read their books in the Bible as well. And they, they encouraged them to get on and finish the temple. And eventually they did in 515 BC. And then it's really interesting to see just how these books of the Old Testament all fit together in the timeline. Then you get the book of Esther. And Esther all happens in the reign of King Xerxes. 
And in, in that book, you can read about how the, the remaining Jews in exile were almost exterminated because of plots against them. But that, that plot failed. And Ezra 7 to 10, after about, after about 60 years, Ezra, uh, there's a new king, Artaxerxes. And Ezra is sent back to Jerusalem, and he goes back to Jerusalem to restore the worship of the temple around 458 BC. Another 14 years passes by, and, and we get into Nehemiah, chapters 1 to 6. And Nehemiah arrives back in Jerusalem around 444 BC to start rebuilding the walls. And as I said earlier on, in the latter half of the book, you can read about how he started rebuilding the people, about restructuring and, and, and bringing them back together. So you can see this is all based in historical fact. This is, histor this is history happening and it's all dotted around the Old Testament, so it's sometimes difficult to follow the flow of history and flow and see how all these prophets and, and, and the history books and the narrative of uh, Ezra and Nehemiah and Esther all fits together with the prophets. So I hope that helps a little bit. But we come here in, in Nehemiah chapter 1 to the year 445 BC. And here's Nehemiah. He's a man, we can drop that now, otherwise you'll be reading it all. <laughs> So, here's Nehemiah, he's in a comfortable position. Chapter, uh, verse 11 tells us that he was the cupbearer to the king. He was also a devout Jew, and yet, many of his, like many of his number, he had chosen to remain in exile. He could have gone home a long time ago if he'd wanted to. But here he was, working for King Artaxerxes, the most powerful man in the world at that time. He wasn't just a waiter uh, as cupbearer, it was a trusted and responsible position. It's a bit like a, a confidant, a companion, someone who had the trust of the king. He's the sort of person that you might sidle up to and uh, try and get him to have a word with the king on your behalf. He'd been privy to many secrets and, and certainly would enjoy the comforts of the court. Nehemiah enjoyed this good, uh, stable, secure lifestyle. And yet in his mind there, wasn't, there was something that wasn't quite right. There's something on his heart, which most of the time he kept under wraps. And we can start to read about it in verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. In the month of Kislev, that's the month of November, December, around that sort of time, in the 20th year, that's 445 BC. Whilst I was in the citadel of Susa, that's the winter palace of King Artaxerxes, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah and some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant and that survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. And they said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem has broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. Well, so what, you might ask, the, the, the city walls of Norwich are also broken down and, and that's a bit sad, um, but it's not the worst thing in the world. So what was bugging Nehemiah so much about this news from Jerusalem. It was, it was simply this. Nehemiah was a good and religious man who wanted to please God. And the walls of Jerusalem being broken down reminded him that the temple of God was left completely undefended. And who could talk about the nation of Israel if there were no walls to defend its capital city? Now I suppose if this had been me, I might have thought about that a little bit and then tucked it away in the back of my mind somewhere and got back on with my nice, comfortable job. But Nehemiah responded somewhat differently. 
Look down to verse 4. Nehemiah says, When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. So we need to learn from Nehemiah's prayer. And the first thing we learn is that Nehemiah's prayer was a prayer that weeps. I wonder what makes you weep. I think perhaps I weep over selfish, selfish things. I weep because I'm living through a bad situation or something has come along which has hurt me in some way. Maybe when we watch the news on television, there's so much suffering, isn't there? It all seems so distant, too far away from us, too remote. And it leaves us kind of cold. But what makes us weep really does betray where our heart lies. You see, it's interesting because Nehemiah probably never visited Jerusalem. He would have been born and brought up in exile. And yet, he weeps over Jerusalem. And that kind of betrays where his chief love and loyalty lies. It was still for God. It was still for God's people. But I guess whilst he was getting on with his life there in Susa, the problems of the people of God in Jerusalem just seemed a little bit long way away, a little bit too distant. But then his brother turned up and gave him this eyewitness account of what had been going on. And that meant that Nehemiah's eyes were opened and it drove him to prayer. And it was prayer that wept. Now, I wonder if anything causes you to weep and mourn in prayer. Perhaps something like the state of the church around the world or, or in this country? Could it be world poverty or global warming? Could it be the binge drinking culture that you could see on Prince of Wales Road every Friday night? Is it, uh, I, yes, yesterday I spent the day at the university trying to write this sermon and I was watching the, uh, the parents coming to collect their children, at the, uh, collect the students at the end of term. And I was just thinking, well, what, if, what, if, what have you learnt this year at university, in your first year at university? What have you learnt? Have you learnt anything about Christ? Have you ever learnt what is important in life? There's 7,000 students there and about 100 in the CU. What have they learnt this year? Is there something perhaps about our own church that makes you weep? We can't weep about everything. We have to be selective. But God often puts something in particular on our hearts. And when he does that, we need to weep in prayer over it. Now, Nehemiah's weeping didn't lead to an instant solution. There was no instant solution to the problem in Jerusalem. When we weep over things that we're concerned about, over the church perhaps, we, we, want, we, want to change, we want to immediately pray for a change in circumstances. We often look for that instant solution. I don't know, we'll do that program or, or that other one. We'll do this course or that Bible study material. We'll lurch from one event to another in some kind of desperate hope that one of them will hit the button and start to turn us around. But Nehemiah's weeping just turned to mourning. It turned to fasting. And the first thing that it changed wasn't the circumstances but it changed Nehemiah himself. You see, Nehemiah, through his prayer, realises that he's been serving a king, King Artaxerxes, 
but he'd not been serving the true king, the God of Israel. He realised that he'd been living a comfortable life whilst the temple of God lay defenceless. His heart was opened up to a new willingness to serve and to a new obedience. And Nehemiah is supposed to be a man of action, isn't he? Often he's quoted as a, some kind of uh, leadership model, as some kind of great model for business leaders. And yet, nowhere in this prayer does Nehemiah say, Dear Lord, I pray that the walls of Jerusalem will be re- rebuilt. Or, Dear Lord, I pray that you would get the king to give me permission to rebuild these walls. He doesn't pray for change of circumstance at all. No, Nehemiah's weeping prayer leads first of all to a change in his character. It leads him to this general sense that he and his people have been disobedient. Just notice the repeated theme of obedience and their failure to obey in verses 5, where he says, God keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands. In verse 7, he says, We have not obeyed the commands, decrees and laws he gave your servant Moses. In verse 9, but if you return to me and obey my commands. This word obedience or obey comes up. I wonder whether you are open to being moved from complacence to obedience by a prayer that weeps. Now my guess is that there's been many, many times when Desmond Tutu has been weeping in prayer over South Africa. And it's my guess that it's that prayer which has made him great by changing his character, not what he's achieved for his country by his actions. So do you have something on your heart, whatever it may be? Take it to the Lord in prayer. Allow yourself to weep and mourn and fast. And let's see what God does with your prayer. Because as we heard earlier on, God does answer prayers, even when we have to wait a long time. Secondly, Nehemiah's prayer is also a prayer that worships. It's a prayer that worships. If you were here last uh, Sunday morning, uh, you would have heard me say uh, that prayer in the Spirit is to pray with our eyes on God. And that's exactly what Nehemiah does here in verses 5 to 11. He prays with his eyes on God. So firstly, in verse verse 5, he says, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, he begins. O Lord... Yahweh, he says, using the traditional title for God used by the Israelites. God of heaven, he says, the Persian name for God. Nehemiah recognises God as both Lord over the Israelites and Lord over the Persians. God is over them all. He's great and he's awesome or terrible, it literally means. God is so great. It's both a reminder of us, to us of the power and influence of God and it's an act of worship. Nehemiah simply recognises God for who he is and praises him for it. Secondly, he reminds God that he is the God of the covenant, verses 5 to 7. O Lord, he prays, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands. See, Israel has a special relationship with God. It cannot be broken. And as again, again, as we said last Sunday morning, praying in the Spirit is to pray as a child of God. See, as Christians, we have an even better relationship with God. We are his very children. And we share in his inheritance. We share in the inheritance of Christ. Thirdly, Nehemiah remembers the character of God. He is faithful to his promises. He keeps his covenant, verse 5. He can never go back on his word. How often, I wonder, do we actually suspect that God is being fickle 
or mean-hearted, sometimes blessing us, sometimes forgetting about us. No, God, Nehemiah reminds us, is faithful. He always keeps his promise of love. Fourthly, Nehemiah reminds himself and God of the promises of God. In verses 8 and 9, he says, Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, and even your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. Where does Nehemiah get these promises from? Was it just a feeling that God would do that kind of thing? Was it something that came to him from deep inside as he was praying? No, Nehemiah was this man who was deeply and profoundly steeped in the word of God in scripture. Verses 8 and 9 here are kind of tracy, a shortened version of Deuteronomy 30, verses 1 to 4, where God promises to bring his people back to the promised land from wherever they've been scattered to around the world if they return to the Lord and obey him with all their heart and with all their soul. You see, he knew God's promises because they were contained in God's word. And how do we know God's promises today? Well, we know them because they're contained in God's word. And we need to find them there and pray about them. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes this, sort of, uh, this idea of uh, praying according to God's promises has got a bad name because of sort of the naming and claiming brigade, which seems to me kind of a superficial sort of technique for twisting God's arm in a way. But it isn't naming and claiming. Because when we worship like Nehemiah did, it is actually costly prayer. As Nehemiah worships, he remembers the promises of God and he makes himself open to God, open to obedience and available for service. Worship is an offering of ourselves. It leads Nehemiah's heart to begin to cooperate with God and that's when things start to happen. But here in Nehemiah's prayer, it's still not time for action. Because as Nehemiah worships, there's still two more steps that God takes him through. Firstly, God takes Nehemiah to confession. In verse 6, he says, Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed your commands, decrees and laws you gave your servant Moses. So part of Nehemiah's worship was not only recognition of his own sin and that of his family, but he identifies himself with the sin of the whole of the people of God. And every time we come to say the confession together, every Sunday morning and evening service, we say the confession together. It's not just there to call my, our minds to our own sin. It's a public, it's a corporate confession of guilt. It's an opportunity for us to identify with the sin of the whole church and to say sorry for them. So when we think of the complete uh, disregard for scripture in some parts of the church or the liberal teaching on, on matters of sexual conduct or, or bishops taking each other to court in America over matters of authority and possession of buildings and things like that, do we weep? as Nehemiah wept in our worship? Do we identify ourselves with the sins of the church? Or, we just, or do we just blame them, them over there? Do we identify ourselves with the sins of the church as Nehemiah identified himself with the sins 
of the people of Israel. Worship drives us to confession. But it also drives us to remember God's redemption, here in verse 10. They are your servants and your people, whom you redeemed, Nehemiah says, by your great strength and your mighty hand. You see, that was deeply ingrained in Israel's culture. They never forgot when God rescued them from slavery in Egypt. The story of how God had overturned Pharaoh's heart and how he had led the Israelites, Israelites across the Red Sea and finally into the Promised Land was deeply ingrained in their psyche, psyche and, their, and their culture. God was a God in their minds who set people free. It was what God did. He was a redeeming God. He paid the price to release them from slavery. They would never forget that fact. Our own Remembrance Sunday once a year is just a tiny reflection of what the Passover meant to the Jews. The Passover, the festival when they celebrated and remembered the day that God had led them out of Egypt, led them out of slavery, and had redeemed them by his great strength and mighty hand. And perhaps something of that was going through the mind of Jesus one day as he approached Jerusalem. Luke's Gospel tells us that he arrived near the top of the Mount of Olives and he looked over the very city walls that Nehemiah had rebuilt. And Luke tells us that he saw the city and he wept over it. And Jesus says, if only you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. We learned earlier on what was on Nehemiah's heart, what led Nehemiah to weep. What was on Jesus' heart as he wept over Jerusalem? It was this, they could find no peace. Then, as now, there are hundreds of ways that people look for peace. But there's only one way in which it can be found. Jesus knew the God whom Nehemiah worshipped. After all, he was God's very own son. He knew that God would be faithful to his covenant promises. He knew that God had sent him to earth in order to fulfill the promises of the prophets, to live and die and rise again. Jesus knew that God would stop at nothing in order to redeem his people and set them free from the slavery of their sin. And perhaps Jesus, as he wept over Jerusalem, thought of the price that would be paid once and for all for their redemption. His very own blood as he died on a cross for our sin. There's two more points to this sermon which we don't have time to finish, but I'll finish them next week because I'm preaching again next week. So I'll return to Nehemiah's prayer next week. But let's remember that. Nehemiah wept in prayer. And Nehemiah worshipped in prayer. And Jesus also wept over Jerusalem as he thought about the redemption that he was going to bring about for us. Let's pray. Father God, as we, uh, as we come to you in prayer, we so often want to see action, we want to see results, we want to see a change in circumstances. But Lord, so often you want to change us you want to change our character first. And Lord, we see that happening 
to Nehemiah as he prays, as he weeps, and as he worships. Lord, I pray that you would make us open to being changed and being open to serve you in whatever way it is that you have planned for us. In the name of Jesus, amen.